Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. No matter how far you run from them, childhood tragedies have a way of catching back up with you. So is true of elite scuba diver Veronica West, who's about to encounter something unexplainable at the bottom of the ocean, something that will draw her back to her home on Sinclair Island, Maine. There, she'll lead a dangerous rescue mission to the bottom of the Bay of Fundy, home of the world's largest tides, and something horrific down in the depths. Listen to Narcosis, the latest horror fiction show on Realm's premier horror channel, Undertow. Narcosis is available now. Search for Undertow or Narcosis wherever podcasts are served. I'm Jane, host of Invisible Tears, and I'm here with my co-host, Amanda and Drew. Hi, guys. How you doing? Good. How are you doing? Doing good. Doing good. Still recouping from CrimeCon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I still, I'm still processing so many things that, that happen at CrimeCon, so many people that we met and conversations we had and... Still, uh, still processing it all. It was so incredible. It was just above and beyond what I expected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the the amount of connections, the amount of conversations, and things that occurred at CrimeCon were really, really impactful. Yeah, it's going to take a while to process through, and even keep on making those connections back with the people that we have, uh, that we did meet at CrimeCon. We're in the process of doing that now. Yeah, we are. Yep. Got a great, a uh, lot of great conversations coming your way. Yeah, absolutely. So this is uh, episode one of season four. Woo-hoo. Wow, I can't believe, I can't believe we're already on season four. I know. I know. Crazy. crazy. So um, today we're going to do what, like some uh, updates uh, from the March and we're going to do some Q&A's. Mm-hmm. We have gotten a few really, really good questions. And um, so why don't we go to um, the updates from the March? Sounds good. Now, as we we already, re, um, already shared on another episode, I did have my meeting with Officer McLaughlin. Me and Jessica did. Uh, it was a great meeting. Very informative. Um, positive. Uh, I have not spoken to him since, but I'm still uh, kind of processing the whole meeting itself. I am actually gathering some questions for him, which he gave me his card and his phone number and everything. And, and you know, so I can um, either message him or call him anytime I want or need. Uh, so that's been, you know, that's, that's good for me to know. And, um, I do plan on uh, calling him in a in a few weeks. So, uh, but me and Jessica were sitting home uh, this past week, and I did get a call from Miles Matson from the AG office. He is the Chief Criminal Justice Bureau Senior Assistant Attorney General. <laughs> he has quite the title. <laughs> he does. Um, he was actually, he stood there at the march the whole day. He did. He was very approachable. Throughout the day, I saw several people going up to him and speaking with him. And, I mean, there was a few that were, you know, pretty voiceless understandably, but he stood there and listened to every single person that wanted to speak to him. Yes. That whole day. And I was really impressed with that. So he did give me a call this week. Uh, wanted to know if I uh, had any questions for him, concerns, 
I did tell him that, you know, which he already knew, that I did have my meeting with Officer McLaughlin and that I was very satisfied with that meeting and that I, it was, it felt good that I now have a contact person. Yes. Uh, So I have a contact person where I can contact or if somebody comes to me with information, I have someone to direct that information to. Yes. Which I did not have that before. Right. So, uh, so yeah, I, I, I talked to Miles about that. Um, and being an advocate, I also wanted to know, you know, had they been meeting with other families since the march? And he was very open and, and open discussion about it with me, which I was kind of surprised, but yet I wasn't. Um, he said that they had met with several families since the march, have shared a lot of information with these families, assured these families that, you know, these cases are being actively looked at. He shared that, um, you know, they are being more proactive with responding to emails quicker than they were before. And they were also responding to, if someone called the office, they were responding to voicemails um, or messages that were left on their phones a lot quicker. Um, So he did assure me of all that because that was a concern that a lot of the families had when we were at the march, that there was people would call the office or email and just never get a response or got a automated response, right? which just was not good. Um, but he assured me that, you know, they are responding to these uh, much more efficiently than they were before, which I was, I was very happy to hear. And I also... I, evidently, he heard that I went to CrimeCon, <laughs> which is kind of funny. I wonder I wonder if maybe the office is actually listening to our podcast you know, because we had the, the that on the podcast. It's a good possibility because I just know in basic conversations that we've had that possibly people within the AG office may be listening to this podcast because we also know that some of the people within the local police departments are as well. Yep, yep. So, um, yeah, that was kind of funny to me. Uh, so. It's like it's so funny. He's like, hey, Jane, how was CrimeCon? You're like, what? How did you know I went there? Well, I was like, so I went to CrimeCon down in Orlando, and he's like, yeah, I heard. And I was like, oh, you did? It's like, so, uh, and, I, and I talked to him a lot about, the genealogy forensics and yes. DNA. Mm-hmm. And I I just really wanted to know if they were using this to, to you know, to their benefit. Uh, if they were really keeping up with um, current forensics that are out there today. And uh, he did. He did say, you know, yeah, we are. And I was... Like one of the conversations that we had with some of the um, people down there that were sharing about the the genealogy DNA was um, there's funding out there for this. And so I I assumed, I guess, um, that if I brought this up to the AG office, one of their concerns would have been funding. And and I would have had the opportunity to say, no, there's funding out there. <laughs> right, right. Um, I didn't have to say that to Miles because he had informed me that they have received some grant money to perform these genealogy DNA testing on some of these cases. Not necessarily the Connecticut River Valley cases, but other cases in New Hampshire that are in the cold case unit. Yep. So that was that was really uh, I was very pleased to hear about that. 
that's really exciting news. That's exciting news that because that was definitely a piece that we all I I remember us all saying down at CrimeCon when we realized that the police departments didn't have to actually foot anything out of pocket when there were grants, when there were other things through these other organizations available. I remember us all saying, oh, we need to make sure that the attorney general's office actually knows this and knows that it exists as an option because it is such a new field. Yeah. I mean, I had my doubts because I, you know, New Hampshire's always given the impression that they don't need outside help. They don't want outside help. I mean, look at how many times uh, like Julie and Fred Murray have requested the FBI come in and they flat out refused. Yep. Uh, look how many times, I mean, we, I have uh, asked about the FBI coming in to, to look at the Connecticut River Valley cases and they refuse. Um, so I was like kind of skeptical whether they would actually want to use this technology with the investigations because they they just they've always given me the impression that they don't need the help or whatever. Um, so that was kind of refreshing to know that they are keeping up with new forensics that are out there today, which is evolving and and, and just evolving all the time. So, yeah, I was I was pretty pleased with that. Yeah. 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 That's great news. About the feedback for Miles that he heard you. Yeah. You know, at the end of the conversation, um, we talked a little bit about the march and uh, the people that were there. And, you know, he, I don't know why I get emotional when I say this. I always do. Um, before our conversation ended, he uh he said, Jane, I assure you, we listened and we heard you at the rally. Yeah. We heard you. And that meant so much because that meant that we didn't do this rally for nothing, that we actually accomplished something with this rally. Um, you know, Time will tell how much we accomplished, you know. Um, you know, I, another thing that I had brought up to him is I wanted to know, he, he did assure me that things are improving within the AG office with communication, communication with the families. So I had asked about also um, the advocates in the office. Uh, were there new procedures being brought up? Is there improvement with the advocates? Are they letting the families utilize these advocates the way they're supposed to be utilizing them? And uh, he, he assured me that uh, everybody that came in that met with them, which were several families, um, they were given the opportunity to have an advocate. Some families chose to have an advocate some families chose not to, which is okay. They just chose to, um, instead of going through an advocate, they wanted to talk directly to the AG office. Yep. And he was okay with that. They were okay with that. So that that was good. They also have a plan on, I guess they, they do have appointments between now and December uh, with meeting more families. Mm. Good. So that was really good to hear too. So... Um, yeah, they heard us and, uh, I guess time will tell, <laughs> um, actions speak louder than words, but as far as I see right now, there has been some change and, uh, you know, some change is better than no change. And, you know, according to Miles, they heard us, they heard us loud and clear. And I did assure him that um, we don't plan on going anywhere anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> that he will, they will be hearing more from us. Uh, but, you know, we were the voice for the voiceless that day. And uh, to know 
we were heard means a lot. Yes. See, I always get emotional with this and I don't know why. (laughs) It's completely understandable, Jane, honestly. And as you can see, if you're watching this visually, I'm starting to get emotional as well. (laughs) It's an emotional thing, right? It's how, like, just to put this into perspective, guys, how does this feedback actually make you feel? I am proud. I am proud of all of us. I am proud of every single person that's a part of the coalition. I'm proud of everybody that came and supported. And I thank, you know, Miles Matson and Michael Garrity for actually showing up to the event and taking the brunt of all of the frustrations that people have had over the course of the past, however many decades and listening and really trying to put things in motion to improve that office. It, exactly. it blows it blows my mind that we actually were heard and that some good positive momentum is happening going forward. Like you said, time will tell, yeah. right? Time will tell. Yeah. But what we listed within our coalition group as what success looked like, what we defined success looking like, we accomplished. Yeah. Because we didn't go up there demanding that this be solved. You know, we're we're all realistic in understanding how long a taste a case, you know, takes to get solved and, and that sort of thing. We're all realistic. What we were demanding was that you listen, that you fix and you start communicating and you stop ignoring. Yeah. And we did that. Yeah, and we didn't want them to forget. That was my my big thing, too. I mean, this march was so personal to me, mm-hmm. like so personal. I just I felt like there was a lot of missing and murdered unsolved cases that were being forgotten in the state of New Hampshire. We made it clear that we didn't want them to be forgotten. And uh you know, I, I think that was a big goal of ours with going up there. And uh, now they're, they're, you know, a lot of the cases are active as much as they could possibly be active. Uh, eyes are being put on these cases. And they know that we're not going to allow these cases to be forgotten anymore. And uh, I think that's that's one of the big messages that we did send uh, send to them up there when we were there. Yeah. Drew, how does it make you feel? It's amazing to see that they are actually doing something. Um, you know, it's not just lip service that they gave us at the rally, that they really did listen. And so far, they are actually taking the correct steps to do what, you know, the rally wanted to get accomplished, which was exactly listen to our, you know, listen to what we're trying to say, listen to what every single family member has been through over the last, you know, anywhere from five to 35 years and nothing had but gotten accomplished from the AG's office. At least this new regime that's gotten in here, they've done more in the last three months than you've seen in the last, what, 30 years, Jane? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So that says a lot right there. Yeah. Were you able to go through any of the footage yet, Drew? Yeah, everything definitely got put on to a pause um, for a little while, but I've been able to go through. Yeah, we got some great footage, got a lot of great moments of particular you talking to Miles directly, both during your speech and prior, before the rally had started. And also the interviews that we conducted at Machine Arts. Those came out really good and looking forward nice. to everybody being able to hear more of conversations that we've had behind the scenes. Maybe we could post some stuff from the march on our Facebook, like little snippets maybe. Could we do that? Yeah, actually. So people could see that. I think that would be a great idea because we talk about the march and how incredibly powerful it was. But I think if people actually see some of what the march was, People could relate instead of just hearing our point of view. People could actually, you know, even relate or see what the march was actually about. I think that would be a great idea to be able to give them some little visuals, Um, you know, not a lot, but 
little visuals I think would be a great idea. And I'm sure you all would love that, um, everybody listening. Yeah, we could actually do it on Facebook, Instagram, like both in the reels, do it on TikTok as well, and even throw it up in our YouTube shorts as well. Yeah. Yeah, so you'll you'll start to see some of that stuff trickle out with all our social media. As long as the audio is good, I think it still is. I even have the uh, scrum that happened before the march even started, <laughs> including the back and forth with the reporter. Oh, my Chloe God. from uh, Trishane's case. Yeah, that was interesting. I was just, I was kind of mind blowing after I thought about it. This reporter is standing there arguing with an advocate of Trish Haynes. And he was standing there arguing with her. Mm -hmm. It was like, are you kidding me? Oh, you are certainly a class act. You are. I know I will never do another interview with him again. Was not impressed. Not impressed at all. But a lot of people got that on video. A lot of people put that in the newspapers, too. <laughs> <laughs> when they uh, did their articles about the march. That was pretty this. <laughs> that was pretty funny. Um, anyhow, um, so that is update with AG Office. Um, like Julie said, I, I always listen to Julie because she's, Julie Murray, she's so, she's so smart and so intelligent, and she's been through it all with Maura's case. Um, but I always listen to her when she says, no matter what they say to you, yeah, always make sure you keep up to date with them. Make them keep you updated because they will, they will trickle away very quickly once they think you heard what you want to hear. Right. So yeah, we're we're staying on top of that, um, you know. Which actually, Miles called me, so I was I was really impressed with that. Um, I was gonna say we did almost we did almost hold a little bit of a uh, controlled um, experiment because we knew everybody that was in the coalition. Everybody's been kind of keeping up to date with when the AG office reached out to them. Now, many of them in the coalition proactively reached out to the AG's office shortly after the advocacy meeting. So they were able to set up calls and discussions. We were like, you know what? Let's take this opportunity. Let's not reach out to them and let's see how proactive the AG's office is with reaching out to Jane. So the fact that that call did come, um, you know, less than two months after the rally, that's good. We were, we were expecting it might take like three months for them to get to set up a call with you or something like that. So the fact that they did actually reach out another very positive sign. Yeah, it was. Well, even uh, Officer McLaughlin, he reached out to me. I didn't reach out to him. Yeah. So that was that was good, too. I definitely think that that was based off of all the press surrounding the event and probably based off of some sort of direction from the AG's office as well. Yep, I'm sure. Good updates. Yeah, those are pretty much the updates. We will continue to keep you updated. I'm hoping we can get some families on uh, that were at the march that can um, update us too and update everybody. We're working on that. We're so behind. We're trying to, <laughs> we're trying to play catch up. CrimeCon was just like so time consuming and we're just trying to get back in the groove of things and and start getting back to back to work. Yeah. So uh, be patient. We're we're trying to gather all this stuff up and and share it with everybody. Obviously, people are seeing um, our podcast going in a little different direction. We're really focusing on um, advocacy and uh, being a voice for the voiceless. So. Yeah, this season is probably going to sound a little different and have a little different content than what we had in the previous seasons. Uh, I think you guys are really going to love it. I think it's um, it's really taken us to another level. You know, it's funny because I, I just want to want to add this little bit. You know, after my attack, obviously I've shared on the on the podcast uh, there was a good twenty year span where my life was pretty messed up and uh, I was messed up mentally. Um, of course, I, I healed quickly physically, 
but I was pretty messed up mentally. And, you know, there was so many days I'd wake up and say, okay, what's my purpose in life? Why did I survive? Why did I survive? Okay, yeah, I survived so my daughter would survive. All right, get that. But then I still ask myself, what is my purpose? Why did I, why did I survive this, this horrific attack? And, you know, the last year I, I finally realized, and, and I so believe in my heart, with doing this podcast, okay, I was able to tell my story, share my story with everybody, my struggles, my ups, my downs, my, um, you know, I've been very open and candid with everything in my life after my attack. And so this, this podcast had given me the opportunity to get my story out there and share my story. But it also, if it weren't for this podcast, I finally came to realize what my purpose is, why I survived, why I believe I survived, and what I believe my purpose is, and that is to advocate. And, you know, I, I'm really diving a lot into that, um, giving a voice to the voiceless, you know, took me a year to realize that <laughs> but um yeah it's like uh, all those years I just uh I asked that question why did I survive and and I don't ask that anymore I know I know there's you know the reason for everything you know me and Amanda say that all the time there's a reason for everything and um I think I was meant to advocate for a long time, but I didn't know it until we started Invisible Tears. Yeah. And, and that's why Invisible Tears came to be. It was to tell me your purpose is to advocate for those who cannot advocate for themselves. And uh, then after doing the march and everything, I realized, okay, yeah, this is... This is definitely what I'm, I'm meant to do. And I'm meant to do it with Amanda and Drew. Um, because I'll tell you, their advocacy work is, is so real. And, and I could not do it without them. I could not do it without you two. Uh-huh. And I thank you. I thank you guys every day. I know. Every day. Thank you, Jane. Thank you. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. And now back to our episode. All right. So should we go on to questions and answers? Or do you guys have anything else to add to to updates? Moving on to Q&A, as long as you don't have anything to add to updates is good. True? Nope. Okay. So basically, as Jane outlined, we've been extremely behind, right? We're trying to get back into it. And there's been a series of different questions that have actually come in, not just even through our email, but through YouTube as well. Um, So we just pulled off a few that we know that we hadn't actually answered yet, um, just so we could put them in this episode, kick it off for you guys, start answering your questions. Don't worry if the questions keep on coming in, we'll keep on doing Q&A episodes. Seriously, ask us anything. All of us are always willing to answer any questions you guys have. But yeah, so we just compiled a few just to just to kick off the season. So uh, first question came in from Jacqueline. It was on um, our first episode, uh, Jane, your attack part one. She thought that it was a Jeep Wagoneer. Jane, do you want to clarify what type of vehicle you think it was at the time of the attack and now has your thoughts possibly changed? Yeah. Um, so obviously I was 22. I didn't know what 
vehicles were makes or models or anything like that. All I could do was simply describe the vehicle to the detectives after my after my attack. Um, so what I had described was a 80s Jeep Wagoneer, dark colored, brown, green, one of the two, with wood grain sides. Then, <laughs> how do I... How do I explain this? So they showed me pictures. Yep, that's that's similar to what the vehicle was. So they ran with it. It's a Jeep Wagoneer uh, with great sides, dark colored. Uh, because of the fluorescent lights that they discovered at the parking lot, um, could be dark brown or, or dark green. They knew it was a dark colored car dark dark colored um so as the years have gone last year it was it was brought to my attention if the vehicle could possibly be a jeep cherokee so obviously i google i google everything i google jeep cherokee 80s and very similar to a Jeep Wagoneer. So to clarify, if you put Jeep Wagoneer and Jeep Cherokee in the same category, the vehicle was very similar to either a Jeep Wagoneer or a Jeep Cherokee. So it's in that family right. of vehicles. Yeah. Is the best I can clarify. Um, do I know that it was definitely a jeep wagoneer no do i know that it was definitely a cheap jeep cherokee no but if you if you google both those vehicles now one's a four-door one's a two-door the two-door was just brought to my attention last year too and i was like "Ooh, that is a possibility so if you google both of them you will see very a lot of similarities. And so the best I could clarify is it's in that family somewhere between the Jeep Wagoneer and the Jeep Cherokee in the 80s. Um, that's the best I could clarify it. And I hope that helps, Jacqueline. When did you give your description to the police? Well, it's it's funny because what had happened was when I showed up at my friend's house right right after my attack before the uh rescue came um the cops were there and it was PD Farnham um I've talked about him in previous episodes he was the first cop there and he asked me what the vehicle was and the friend of mine Bob's whose house I was at that I that I went to his brother-in-law lived next door and he had a very similar vehicle, but it wasn't quite like that. So with me describing it and comparing it to that vehicle, I just said it was like Jay's vehicle. Um, but it wasn't like that. <laughs> it was it was similar. So that's when they brought, you know, like pictures and stuff. And and um, I don't know that they showed me the Jeep Cherokee, but they did. Definitely showed me the Jeep Wagoneer, a picture of the Jeep Wagoneer uh, when I was in the hospital. So that was pretty much how they kind of ran with that. Were you still incubated at the time? No. Oh, okay. Okay. No. Now, in your memory, do you recall if it was a two door or a four door? I don't. <laughs> and, you know, honestly, it could have been a two door. You know, it's funny how the memory works. You assume that. You saw one thing, but yet when something else is brought to your attention, you're like, ooh, could have been. Right. Yeah. 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 You know, and, and that's how I felt when the two-door Cherokee was brought to my attention and I Googled it. I was like, ooh, could have been. Now, me and Amanda were talking today um, about the wood grain siding and, you know, when I start talking about the wood grain siding, you're thinking the whole side is wood grain. Right. You know, yeah, yep. it's about that much, about <laughs> that much. 
Um, but then I was watching on TV the other night and I saw a Jeep Cherokee and the wood grain siding was just a sliver, uh, just a very thin line going right down the whole side. And for some reason that caught me, uh, it hit my memory. I was like, whoa, maybe it was just that amount of wood grain siding on the Cherokee. So I'm almost questioning my memory on that too. Right. Is the paneling just four inches wide or is it 10, 12 inches wide? Yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I could remember more. I really do. But to me, those are good things to use because now you're not just focused on one thing. It's a possibility of a few things. So it kind of widens, you know, all these years they were looking for a Jeep Wagoneer with, you know, the full full panes of, of wood grain. Um, now maybe this gives them a chance to look at something different and maybe finding, you know, uh, some new evidence or something um, new, a new person of interest to, to talk to. I, I am going to be uh, messaging uh, Mike McLaughlin state trooper that's handling my case right now and uh i'm, I'm going to bring that to his attention and you know it gives them a more wider range of what to look for yeah you never know you know they say this that one little thing that helps crack a case you never ever know i don't mean to confuse you anymore <laughs> um jacqueline but i mean this is the best that i could clarify yeah, so it sounds like, generally speaking, fairly certain that the make is a Jeep. It's just a little bit of a question about the model. Now, the model would be limited based off of the actual shape. So again, like you said, if you Google the Jeep Wagoneer, especially during those years, like 80s, and then the Jeep Cherokee, you can see what Jane is actually talking about with the similar shape. Um, so it, unfortunately, like you said, it was it was so long ago that it's it's understandable to not know the exact make and model. But the body styles were similar. Mm-hmm. Yep. Very similar body styles. That was a good question, though. And I, I get asked that a lot. Do you? I do. How positive were you? It was a Jeep Wagoneer. And I, I always say, I'm not. <laughs> it was just, um, you know, it was something that was very similar Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying it's not either. Right. It, it very well could have been a Jeep Wagoneer, mm-hmm. um, but it's similar. Um, so our next question actually came in through email and it was from a new listener. His name is Rich. Um, so he's fairly new to Binging Invisible Tears. Thank you, Rich. Um, he sent in a question after hearing your account of what happened to you during your attack. And basically what he asks is this. So when the guy looked at your car and said the thing that he said about the license plate, you know, the whole Massachusetts driver, you beat up my girlfriend. um, He's wondering if the cops or if anybody has ever explored the idea that this story could have actually been true. And if so, if the cops actually ever ran any sort of like, you know, Massachusetts license plate with your, you know, your similar type of car to try and get anybody of interest based off of association. Now, this is something that I had never thought of. I asked Drew and he had never thought of it either. So Jane, what are your thoughts on that? What a great question. Um, I don't know. (laughs) I, I don't know. I do know that they did work with Massachusetts with um, the plates and everything with the vehicle he was driving. Okay. Because back then, okay, so obviously I heard in the hypnosis that um, the plate was green and white. Well, if you go back in the 80s, you will see that some of the plates in Massachusetts were green and white. But I guess what brought them back to New Hampshire was the... um, Registration tag? Registration tags. Thank you, Drew. Um, But I don't know that they actually looked into more about 
Massachusetts uh, vehicles, um, the Firebirds, right? Um, if um, they could possibly be connected, I I don't know. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, I don't know if it's too late, but I will definitely be bringing that up to Officer McLaughlin because I'm kind of curious about that too. I would hope that they did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I really don't know. Now, they may have viewed it kind of like what we did where mm-hmm. it was just a ploy. It was just something he was saying right. something to catch you off guard. So there wasn't actually a girlfriend, a car with Massachusetts. It was just a way for him to throw you off. Um, yeah. So that brings up the question. Exactly. Was he trying to just throw you off or was he actually looking for somebody who beat up his girlfriend that was driving a Massachusetts car? And yet, did they actually try to locate that person who was in a, you know, who was right. assaulted? Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's so funny when he actually sent this question in and I actually read it to Drew too. The thought had never actually crossed my mind that his story might have actually been factual. Yeah. You know what I mean? It never once did it actually occur to me that maybe that actually was a real story. Maybe that actually did happen. In which case, you know, a similar car to yours, similar color, you know, it, with Massachusetts plates, they very well could have, and when he said, beat up my girlfriend, I mean, there could have been, you know, some sort of search done and, you know, process of elimination through association and things like that where the vehicle had been. Yeah. Very good possibility. Next question came in from Jody. This is in uh, regards to our Dark Valley reaction of episodes one and two, which was your uh, initial intro and also Elizabeth Critchley's case. So how do you know where the bodies were discovered? Newspaper articles. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We uh, went to the library in Claremont, and there was this holy book grail, <laughs> holy grail book um, uh, of the Connecticut River Valley. It had every article in the area ever printed about all the victims from the Connecticut River Valley serial killer. And even other victims that were possibly believed to have been tied, whoever did put this together, they looked at all the crimes in the area that could possibly be related and compiled all the newspaper clippings. Yes. I mean, this binder was this thick. Yeah. Uh, It was perfectly put together all by date. So going through the paper articles... Like when they found, uh, say, Eva Morse's body, it said in the paper, uh, Eva Morse's body was discovered on yeah, Unity Stage Road. Unity Stage Road. So through all those paper articles um, at the time of when they were found, um, back then they actually really um, described and, and, and told and talked about where these bodies were found. So that's how we uh, were able to go to the the spots where, where their bodies were found. And it was also coupled with Jen's research that she had done and some of the police reports she was able to obtain. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. That she was able to actually validate the information in the newspaper articles. Because as we saw, when you're going through all of those different articles, information was changing article to article. Yeah. So it was, a, okay, them, we, got, yeah. we got the police report on this case it corroborates with this news article. Therefore, how does this reporter and our newspaper cover the other cases for validity? Yeah. So that's how we were able to find the spots where the bodies were discovered, uh, except for, uh, obviously, Bernice Cordemarches. <laughs> that was, um, we, were not be- we were not able to really go where her body was found yeah. or even really figure it out when we started hearing gunshots so we knew it was our time to leave hosted private <laughs> property yeah they didn't want us there that had bullet holes in it <laughs> it's still one of the freakiest moments i think you me and jen have actually ever encountered i have to be honest with you I, absolutely absolutely it was almost out of a movie it was it <laughs> totally was and that's what i actually kept on thinking 
Yeah, you see this stuff on movies, so it actually happens. <laughs> well, as we're sitting there and actually trying to document some things too, you know what I mean? Trying to document and capture th- some things for our own media purposes. All I kept on thinking was that we were going to turn into our own case and our own article. <laughs> yep. Yep. And then Jen's like, don't worry, I'm packed. Yeah, I was like, all right, I feel safe now. All right. But yeah, good question, Jody. Yeah. Thank you, Jody. And so. Uh, the last question that we actually pulled to go over um, was actually a YouTube comment that we received um, by someone named Dave. And he actually said, I'm covering the case, meaning the Connecticut River Valley cases. I'm sure that he's assuming because he goes on to ask, has anybody looked into whether or not the new Bedford Unaliver and the CRV killer are connected? So it's funny that when this message came through, I was literally reading up on the new Bedford um, serial killer that is also unsolved. That also happened during the late 80s. Um, however, being New Bedford, Massachusetts to the Connecticut Valley, there is quite the difference uh, distance between the two. And also the victims in the two cases are polar opposites. Um, I believe, hopefully I don't confuse other cases with the New Bedford one, but I believe the New Bedford one was uh, prostitutes tend to be minorities versus the Connecticut Valley no prostitution is in question and it's all uh, white females um, and also the areas that they were. One was, uh, yeah, along a highway in the New Bedford area, I believe like almost like a circular pattern where the bodies were found versus Connecticut Valley is really along one corridor, sort of north and south. Gotcha. Gotcha. How many victims were there? Um, I can't remember off the top of my head, um, it, but it's one of those, um, Dave. Appreciate this. I was actually going to, I was looking into this to see if there was some sort of connection, um, but very early on in my research right now. So I don't have a whole lot of answers, but my first gut instinct is that they are unrelated. But once I get some more information on them, Jane, I would love to kind of review that with you and Amanda as well, just to get your thoughts on, do you feel like there might possibly be any connection? And those cases still remain unsolved. Yep, possibly 11 victims. Wow. Wow. And in 80s, you said, right? In the 80s? Yep, between March 1988 and April 1989. Wow, that's a short span of time. It really is. And it doesn't seem like there's been a whole lot of coverage on it, I guess is my point. Why? Because they're prostitutes? See it a lot. You do. Yeah, that'd be something that I would love to be. Uh, we could dive into. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, Dave, thank you. Thank you for, uh, thank you for that question and for bringing up those cases. Um, We'll actually contact you. We'll we'll contact you directly. I actually did see, I believe you actually emailed us as well a little bit ago. Um, Expect communication back from us directly. We'd love to have some further conversations with you about these cases. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, everybody, for the the questions and uh, being a part of our Q&A. And I did want to send out a little message to another listener, uh, Sean R. He sent a lot of information. Uh, Sean, I do apologize. haven't been able to deep dive into it yet, but thank you for sending all that stuff along. Yes. Since CrimeCon, we've actually, just so everyone's aware, since CrimeCon, we have actually received multiple, and I will say positively about four different uh, people and inquiries and information, four different people have actually sent us in some information. Um, I think some of it is related to a little bit of the press from CrimeCon, or maybe possibly people were there, or maybe it's just a matter of that, you know, it's a coincidence with the timing. But um, for all of you, and if we haven't responded directly back to you yet, we are seeing all of your communications and we appreciate any information that you send to us too. Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, Do not think we're not noticing it. We're looking at the information and Uh, We're definitely going to forward it to um, the right authorities, Uh, definitely. And thank you. Thank you. It's like no matter how little or how how, um, small the information is that you have, um, even if you think it's not even related or could be related but not sure, send us the info. We'll get it to the authorities 
um, this is how cases are solved, is that one little thing that nobody even thought of was connected and, and it can connect everything and blow everything up and, and solve a case. So, um, you know, all these cases are still unsolved. Uh, every single one of the Connecticut River cases still remain unsolved. And um, as long as we keep that word out and maybe people will, you know, come forward with info, uh, I don't care how small you think it is, it could be that that one piece of info that, that can crack the case. Um, keep it coming. And we will absolutely be sure to give it to the authorities, the right authorities that will look into it. And now is the perfect time, right? Now that Jane has the direct line in to, um, to the detective um, and definitely has his contact information. So now is the right time to come forward with any sort of information that you have about Jane's case or the Connecticut River Valley cases. Um, our email to send that directly to is invisible.tears1966 at gmail.com. It's the best way to send us information. So... With that, there's our season four, uh, episode one kickoff. I just, I want to thank everybody for listening. I, I've gotten some of the most touching private messages from people. And, and it means so much to me. Um, I don't always respond as soon as I should. And I apologize for that. But I assure you, I read them and they mean so much to me. Um, all your all your emails and private messages, they just, they really do mean a lot. And we all appreciate that. You know, we thank you. We thank you for listening to us. You know, share. <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, subscribe. Hit that subscribe button so you don't miss an episode. And, and we're ready to um, really take off with season four. And uh, we're going to have a lot of good stuff on, a lot of really um, wonderful, wonderful guests. Uh, super excited about a few of them coming up. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Invisible Tears. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast to hear all future episodes. Click into our link tree too in the episode description to find and follow us on all our social medias. And it also links to our website, invisible-tears.com, where you can keep current on any events that may be coming up, read more about Jane and the team, and read more about all the Connecticut River Valley unsolved cases. If you want to learn more about my wellness practice, Guided Path Wellness, head to guidedpathwellness.org. There you can read more about me and my certifications, more about the Reiki and coaching services I offer both in-person and remote, and read all about my products for sale that I make through the practice. Feel free to utilize the contact us section on the website with any questions or utilize that free 15-minute consultation booking button if you have any questions about what might work for you. Evil may exist in this world, but we will not let it win. See you next episode.